Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, a special Sunday mailbag edition. That's right, we're the podcast with lots of problems, but an $85 billion deficit is not one of them. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, on this Sunday, Dr. Nirvan Mahati. G'day, Doc. G'day, Captain. Mate, um, we recorded on Friday's episode before we saw Josh's numbers. We've now seen them. So this is a mailbag episode, but it's hard to, um, <laughs> hard to ignore an $85 billion hole, isn't it? It's only 85 Is that all? Next year says more. How much is next year's? $200 billion. Oh, that hurt more than I thought it was going to. Yeah. That's a- the good news is you were telling me that economic growth is only supposed to be slightly negative this year. Minus 0.25 is the prediction. I... Can I tell you, like, I know job keepers keeping people in work and I know that blah, blah, blah. Honestly, if you'd have if you'd have told me in January what was going to happen in February with the virus and yet growth would be just barely negative, unemployment would be seven and a half, which is bad, but not terrible, even with, let's assume it's 10 or 11% with, with the job JobKeeper stuff. I would give you long odds on those and I would have taken that with both hands. You said there's going to be a massive pandemic, shut the economy down and by the way, at the end of it, we're going to have... 7 to 10% unemployment and a very, very slight contraction in GDP, that is a gold medal performance, isn't it? I think that that's that's fantastic. Yeah, I think th- those numbers Amazing. are... Th- those numbers are, are... Well, they're good for what they are. I mean, on yeah. the other hand, I mean... So, the, so that you can, you can... We can talk about this in multiple different ways, right? So how much did... Uh, I think Singapore reported what 40% contraction or something like that yes yeah it's 40%. 40% that's like unbelievable um, <laughs> that was a quarter so we will even add over a year and these are yearly numbers with Australia yeah. so I don't want to I don't want to compare apples with apples but yeah but 40% yeah, in 40% in one quarter I mean oh, that's going to have a huge impact on oh, your yearly number right? it has to yeah. so I mean that might translate into something like 10% for the year contraction yeah. Um, yeah. so so there's that now, on the other hand I mean here's the other way to think about it right if you were if the predicted GDP growth was going to be 2.25% or 2.3% or something yep. like that. Yep. And then you go from there to minus yeah. 0.25. Yep. It's quite a bit. Oh, right? it is, in percentage. Man, terms. I would have... If you'd have explained to me in January this was going to happen, I would have said 15% unemployment, GDP down 5%. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm astonished. I mean, look, we've, we've paid for it. Right? We're buying these good results with a budget deficit. So it's not, you know, someone's going to pay the piper at some point. I just, I'm just... And again... This is not a political point in the slightest. I think I think Scomo and Josh have done a pretty good job. I've got some issues with a couple of things they've done. So it's not. A, I don't. I don't. You know. It's not about saying the government's done well or badly. It's just like I'm stoked with these numbers. I, on behalf of Australia and Australians, the people who otherwise would have been out of work, the people who otherwise would have had incomes reduced massively. I mean, this is a really good result. Yeah. Like I mean, the the stimulus has really done its job, right? Yeah. 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 All right, mate. This is a mailbag episode, so let's move on from that. I just I had to comment on it because. We're not back until next Friday, and we've been a long time, and those numbers were just phenomenal, really astonishing. Both, you know, size and unexpected nature of them. So we'll take it. We should say, by the way, these are forecasts. <laughs> Treasury do a pretty good job of forecasting, but let's be honest, it'll be twenty billion plus or minus, right? These aren't these aren't small numbers, and there's so much uncertainty. We shall see. All right, Josh asks a question, mate. He says, "Hi, Scott and Doc. I love, mate, I love this question. You'll love this question too. I love the podcast and can't thank you guys enough for sparking an interest again with investing in the share market." Here's the, here's the bad story, mate. After being burnt, getting some poor advice into invest in managed funds with a high loan to valuation mar- margin, sorry again, high loan to valuation ratio, margin loan, right before the GFC, he says, and cashing out as I couldn't fund the margin call and could not take the stress. I'm surprised I'm even writing this to you. My newfound interest was brought upon by trying to find a better way to invest some money over the next 20 years for my two young girls, better than in the bank. 
through listening to your podcast, doing a lot of research, setting up a brokerage account, signing up for EO, and with some nerves of steel, bought a number of shares in March and April with great success to date. Well done. The invested money I have put away for my girls has risen 75% to the end of the financial year, which has given them a great start to their compounding journey. I can't thank you both enough and feel like I'm much better informed this time around. No margin loans. Keep up the great work. Now, you asked the question, Doc. I'm just going to stop there for a second. I, I, look, Josh, mate, well done for jumping back on the horse for you, for your kids. Um, you know, I don't blame you for being burnt. That was awful, awful advice. Anyone who gave you that advice should be thrown out of the industry, quite honestly. I'm not going to... I'm not going to uh, not going to mess around on this one, and and Phil's when we say don't do margin lines, when we say don't use debt, this is why. Like take uh, Josh, I hope you don't mind, but take Josh's lesson as a as a really important lesson for everybody. We've seen market volatility again through February, March, and April, so hopefully you've got it well and truly in your mind that debt is bad and and it can really destroy things. But take Josh's example, right? Josh was given investing advice. I'll say advice almost in in air quotes because it was such bad bad advice, but. Invest in managed fund with a high loan to valuation ratio margin loan right before the GFC. Just awful, awful outcomes. And the fact you had to cash out because you couldn't fund the loan and couldn't take the stress. So please, again, I, Josh, I, I don't want to make too, too fine a point of your bad news because the good news is even better. You've got back on the horse, mate. But um, I hope you don't mind. I'm sure you've asked the question. So for anyone listening who's saying, how bad can it be? How, pos- how bad can things possibly go? The margins are good. It'll help me make more money. It might. Or you might be Josh. But as I said, the good news, Josh, you've done a spectacular job, mate, getting back on the horse. Um, we wouldn't necessarily expect 75% gains next year, so don't lock those in. Um, but we're glad we've been able to get your girls off to a good start. All right, here's his question. Given it's end of financial year and tax time, what are the yearly tax implications and information I need to report? I've not sold any shares, but someday in the future, I'm sure I will. This is the first tax time for a while I've had to consider this. I would appreciate your help and insight full on. Now he's got a he's got a um, he's got a question too, a second question, a bonus question, but let's go with that one for a start, mate. So um, he hasn't sold any shares yet. What does he need to know for tax time? Well, I mean, if he has got any dividends, mm-hmm. then he would need to declare those dividends. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, if he has actually uh, given the TFN numbers and things like that, yep. he would probably already be with the ATO. But right. um, <laughs> they will know. <laughs> they will know that you've got you've got frank dividends or unfrank dividends, and yep. they'll be there. Um, so, I mean. Basically, if you have not sold anything mm-hmm. and if you haven't gotten any dividends, yep. you have nothing to do. Right. So there are two types of proceeds from shares. There are capital gains and there are dividends or sometimes called distributions. Companies pay dividends, unit trusts pay distributions. It doesn't really matter. Just call them dividends for the sake of the exercise. Capital gains, you only are taxed on those when you sell. So you can hold a gain for 50 years. You won't pay a cent in tax unless the government changes the rules until you sell. So that's the time. With dividends, as Doc's already said, you have to declare the income from the dividend plus the credit you get for the franking credits, which help offset your tax. So as Doc again says, most of those will already be in the hands of the ATO. But if you kept an eye on your uh, brokerage statements, if you've got any dividends in the last little while, you should get some uh, some paperwork and you should be able to add those up pretty quickly. Last thing I will say is, while it's not required now, at some future time when you do sell, you need to have a record of the purchase price and date of those shares. So keep that in mind. You don't want to have to be trying to look for paperwork in 15 years' time. You know, when did I buy those shares and when was it? Where's the paperwork? So keep that handy. Um, also remember, if you sell shares within 12 months, the capital gains tax is twice as high as if you wait at least 12 months and one day to sell any shares. So again, we don't say tax should should drive your decisions, but it should be a consideration. If you're 11 and a half months into a, a holding, um, you may want to consider waiting for a couple of weeks and make sure you don't uh, end up paying twice as much tax as you need to. Uh, P.S. He says, if I'm allowed another question, 
says in brackets, stretching the friendship I know. Five-star review just came your way. You know the way to our heart, Josh. Thank you. For an amateur, do you guys have any good tools you'd recommend like spreadsheets, apps or programs, free and paid, to track annual and overall performance of individual shares? Currently, I've set up my own basic spreadsheet, but I'm sure there are probably simpler and better ways. It'd be interesting to know what you guys do and would recommend for an amateur like myself. Cheers, Josh. Doc, any suggestions? Yeah, so there's a couple of different ways of doing this. In Depending on which type of broker you've got, um, like, so for example, I, I have an account with St. George's mm. uh, platform. I think it's called DirectShares. They have a they produce a yearly report via tax tools, right? Um, and that that tool is actually from a different company. Uh, but anyways, you don't need to know which yeah, company. Yeah, Com- Comsec do a, an annual report to report. kind of a yeah. 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 So tax tools, you know, tax tools actually comes from premium. Nice. Uh, but but the, but tax, you know, the tax tools uh, report is all you need really. It's got your capital gains. It's got your franking information. It's got your nice. the, the only thing it doesn't do, I think, if I remember correctly, it doesn't do the you know the the CTG calculation. It'll show you okay. when you bought it, when you sold it, and things like that, and and total capital gains. Mm-hmm. So that's one. You could do it by 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 yourself if you're not training frequently. It's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can use a tool. There's like, you know use use something like ShareSite, for example, mm-hmm. um, which you can just link to your broker account and it will produce reports for you. Um, ultimately, you are still responsible for the report that you use to declare your taxes. It's yep. your responsibility, not the the tool's responsibility, mm-hmm. the, the way to put it, the ATO will not come after the tool, the ATO mm-hmm. will come after you. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Uh, you, don't, you don't get to blame your accountant either. If your accountant messes you up, yeah, it's still no, your responsibility. It's still your responsibility. Ultimately, you are signing it, right? Correct. So that, 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 that the responsibility, the buck stops <laughs> yeah. at you. It really, really as, does. As the ATO would like to say. Yep. Uh, so that's that. I, like, personally, I, if you're not doing a lot of trading, like I don't do a lot of trading, mm. like, well, I, I, I do some options and so this it's a little bit more complicated for me, but I still don't use any tools. So I basically just... Yep. Uh, um, I do everything using spreadsheets mm-hmm. and, you know, I have some code written that I can parse stuff uh, that, you know, so I spend if, a little bit of time to do it, mm. but not a whole heap of time. Um, otherwise, I find that most brokerage accounts have tools that you can run to, you know, you can get a, you can get a report of when dividends were paid, yeah. um, you know, and what date, how much. Uh, you can get, you know, buy and sell reports if you want. So a whole heap of different things. Mm-hmm. You've got to work out what works best for you. I will agree completely with that. I use a spreadsheet for years. Um, I, I honestly, Josh, as a, as a restarting amateur, a rebeginning amateur, I wouldn't spend the money on share site. I love share sites; great for me. Um, the share site are a friend of the fool. We like them; they like us. Um, I've given them testimonials before on their email list and vice versa. So, um, just full disclosure: no, no money ever changed hands. We just genuinely like each other, so we're happy to be positive and supportive of each other as businesses. And I, I like the guys at the share site. Um, but I, so I use it, and it's great. I, I pay full freight for it. By the way, they have never offered me, nor would I accept a, a discount for it. Um, so you know that that's the simple reality. From a, um, but that being said, when you're just getting started, you don't need to spend all that money on it. So I've got long term positions now. I've got some buys and sells. I probably could, frankly, drop share side if I wanted to. I kind of like it. And it's I'm happy to stay with it. But I wouldn't have signed up to it, and I wouldn't for our listeners. Until you've got a certain number of holdings or a certain age of holdings, if dividends or dividend reinvestments are important. The, the paperwork sort of gets kind of compounds like like your returns, uh, and at some point you may find it's worthwhile. But mate, if it's just you know a decent amount of money, but but not too big for two girls and a couple of positions, I wouldn't do spreadsheets. So I had many more shares in there, and it was starting to become painful to keep track of records, unless 
you are really, really terrible at record keeping. Like Doc's got his own spreadsheet. He's got written programs and, and that's all awesome. I had some similar sort of stuff. I had graphs and all sorts of stuff. I just love doing it. It was fun. Um, so if you love doing it, do it yourself. If you don't love doing it and you want to make sure you maximize your chance of not messing something up or losing something or getting something wrong, um, a paid service might be useful. If you are going to do it, I would highly recommend ShareSite. I'm pretty sure they have like a free model for up to 10 positions or something. So you can kind yeah, I think of so. I try think before so. you buy if you want to too. So have you got that? But please keep your paperwork anyway. Because um, you, you can load the information later, right? If you join ShareSite in three years time or something else, you can always go back and put the previous purchases in and get yourself up to date, which is what I did with my, actually uploaded a spreadsheet into it and made it really, really simple. So there you go. There's some options. But thanks, Josh. Well done, mate. Good on you for getting started again. Thank you. I'm glad we've been able to help you, mate. Makes me pretty happy. It makes Doc pretty happy that we've been able to help you do that for you and also for you girls. So, mate, thanks for letting us know. Much appreciated. I was just going to add one thing. Yeah. You know, um, I, 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 you know, I don't know how to be the Debbie Downer here. But, oh, come on. But I'm just, I just want to caution. Come on. 75% gains <laughs> in, in a yeah, few exactly. months is awesome. <laughs> they but only happen when you have 35% falls. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and there's a lot of timing there and they've come yeah. on uh, your picks. So I'm happy for that. But I'm just cognizant of the fact <laughs> that you can't expect another 75%. Just... Uh, yeah, he's just yeah. You know, so you you know having the right ex- the reason I want to point this out is you know I'm not trying to bat you know I'm not I, I don't want people to come across as thinking that you know if they buy EO uh, they're gonna get seventy five percent gains. Uh, <laughs> yeah, good point. That's Thank number you. one. Yeah, uh, and number two is the expectation <laughs> is important because you know if you have the right expectations then um, w- when the results um, work out the way it is then mm-hmm. you you can frame it in the right context and having yeah. the right context is really important. No, so our goal is to market beat, and and you know we we would deliver on that mandate, or that's that's what we strive to deliver. Mm, you know, we mm. would market beat handily is what we're trying to do, but you know I would never say seventy five percent is just mind boggling, and yeah. there's there's a lot of timing in that. <laughs> so so brilliantly done with timing yeah, is right. and congratulations on take, that. Take it, Josh. Claim yeah. it for yourself. Just don't expect yeah. it on going. Yeah. <laughs> nice one, Doc. Thank you. All right, question from Damo, mate. Damo says, firstly, thanks for the excellent podcast on moats. Very informative. I'm glad you liked that. We actually quite liked doing it. That was that was a fun podcast. We'll do that from time to time. Um, normally, one of us can't be around or we're doing something in advance. We'll, we'll record something like that. Um, we try and be kind of topical and, and, and reasonably timely with most of our stuff, but some of the good long-term investing is, is super worthwhile. Anyway, Damo says, my question follows up Mr. Phillips' explanation. Mate, don't call me Mr. Phillips. That's my old man. Call me Scott. Uh, of the futility of ethical investing which I thought was very clear, even if not what people want to hear. Thank you, mate. I was wondering why so many still track that way rather than investing in something like the Future Generation Fund, which actively donate their management fee to charity and have no performance fees. This seems like a far more practical way to invest ethically and positively impact society or the environment, which I assume is the point, or am I missing the point? Thank you, Damo. He says, more info. I've also set up some, just set up some shares for my daughter and chose FGX, which is Future Generation, for her first share. Teach her about finance as well as giving all at once. Damo. Um, I, I have no problem with that, Damo. I think that's a great way to do it, mate. If you, if you, you know, some people want to do it themselves, not pay the fee at all, and, and then maybe don't have some of their proceeds to charity. So you can do it yourself. But, mate, absolutely. If, if people want to have a way of adding some money to charity or to doing some, make some positive change in the world, and if those fund managers are doing what is a, a wonderful thing and giving their entire fee to charity, mate, I, I, more power to them. If, if these guys do well, um, I'd be more than happy to see it. So, yeah, I think that's a, a great way to. If you want to use your investing dollars to impact society, 
And if you can generate something like probably 1%, I suppose, of the fee, whatever the fee is, um, 1% of your, your account balance goes to charity every year and that grows because they do a good job, that's a pretty good win-win and much, much more useful, I think, than thinking you're doing something ethical by just buying companies that do things that you, you like. Doc, do you have a thought on that? No, I think I, uh, I I agree with what you said. It's pretty good, hey? Yeah, it's very good. That's awesome. Yeah. Nice one, Damien. Thank you, mate. Thanks for the question. Thanks for the suggestion, too. I hadn't, uh, hadn't picked that up. All right. Uh, Scott and Doc, greetings. This is from Joseph. As I was doing the chores around the house this morning while listening to my foolish podcasts, I re-listened to your October 22 Money Hacks edition where you and Anirban were chatting about free money compounding over decades. I couldn't help connecting the similarities of time frame between your example and my own story. So this is kind of cool. You mentioned if I if you had invested ten grand in nineteen eighty nine, today you'd have one hundred and forty six thousand dollars. I had been working for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and had just quit in January of nineteen eighty nine. They gave me the option of leaving my nine hundred and sixty dollars, which I had amassed, invested in the state pension fund, or take the cash. I thought I was clever at twenty four years old. I took the cash and called Vanguard a week later to reinvest it. Unfortunately, it was late in the afternoon, so I left a message on an answering machine saying I had a thousand bucks to invest along with my pager number. Remember pages? <laughs> I like that. Uh, did you have a pager, Doc? I never oh, had yeah. a pager. You did? Yeah. I was never, I never had a pager. I went straight to mobile phones. There you go. Uh, pages were cool. cool Very pages. cool. That was awesome. It reminds me of Wall Street. All right. He says, when I didn't get that page returned, I ended up using the money to move to San Francisco instead of asking my parents for help. That approximate $1,000 you were saying would have been worth about $14,600 today. Okay, to make matters more interesting mathematically, I worked out, uh, where are we? Um, oh, sorry, I worked the next five years in the film industry, making peanuts twice over that period. I made enough money to buy two leather jackets, 300 bucks each. Apparently one wasn't enough. Well, there you go. Working in visual media, we all had and used Apple computers exclusively, yet not once had it occurred to me to buy stock in Apple. Had I done so at the time for going only one of my leather jackets, I calculated it would have converted 300 bucks to about $35,000 today. My story is progressing well, however. Cut to today. I've been investing foolishly with a capital F since 2013 or so, and it's going extremely well. At 55, today I'm managing my accounts and have a few others of friends and family, and you better believe I'm preaching to my kids, nieces and nephews, this fantastic adventure of growing wealth for retirement or whatever your long-term goals may be. Here's a chance to share my own money hack. While I calculate my portfolio carefully to help deal with market, uh, to help deal mentally with volatility, I consciously subtract 30% from the total and register that number as my current milestone. I couldn't be happier today. He says, go after pay Kogan and a bunch more from down under. Cheers, Joseph. I don't have much to add on that, Jock. I think, I think Joseph's done a, a stunning job of explaining the situation i think if there's some lessons there it's buy what you know buy early maybe don't buy leather jackets and don't rely on vanguard returning your pager numbers maybe is that the lesson i, l- I love this because i actually do something like what joss does uh about the uh, about the total number oh do you yeah i, I cool. do that so i always yeah think of the total account value yeah as down 50 percent <laughs> nice good idea and if, if and if i look at that number and if i'm happy <laughs> Life is things great. And things are good. Things are good. So nice. I, I, I really like that. Uh, oh, yeah, that's, that's a great way of thinking about volatility. That's cool, man. It's, yeah, it's really cool. I love it. And I'm glad that other people actually think about it that way. 
Nice. There you go. You got, you got a friend in Joseph. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah look, you I know, it. it's, it's all... And again, I say it all the time, mate. I, maybe once a podcast or once a week anyway. It's all psychology, right? And, and the ability to find a way to keep yourself out of that problem that you're doing, that Joseph's doing, just to literally help you manage the volatility and the, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, as we say, um, super, super valuable, right? If it stops you from doing something silly, then it's well and truly worthwhile. Absolutely. All right, let's move. Mate, thanks, Josh. Joseph. Sorry, thanks for sharing that, that story. That was awesome, mate. So well done. Um, hopefully, you sort of love the jacket at least or something. Um, and hopefully San Francisco was good. You know what? I mean, there's value in in you're following life goals as well, right? Don't 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 be don't be don't be too rich and too boring and have have a terrible life. Go and spend some money if you need to. Just remember that everything has a cost. Yeah, absolutely. You want to have a little jacket? You should. You want to have an Apple computer? You should. Maybe have. <laughs> maybe you should have two, right? No uh, one needs two Apple computers. Yeah, let's move I like. On. I mean, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, good question from Tendai. Uh, Scott and Doc love the podcast. You've really helped me shape my philosophy on investing over the last 12 months of listening. Thank you. Your jokes, ramblings, and random tangents have helped me stay in good spirits during COVID-19 as well. It's our pleasure. I'd love to say it was deliberate, Doc, but that's just kind of how we roll, right? Yeah, that's what we, they're, they're, yeah. we <laughs> just, ramble. Just so you know, there's no, there's no COVID-related ramblings or jokes. Yeah, it's just, it's just, we just ramble. <laughs> All right. As FYI, I'm a big advocate of The Motley Fool. Thank you. And recommend your service to anyone in my circle who asks me for investment advice. I'll send you an invoice for my services soon. Uh, please do. Uh, it may, look, if it, if it gets lost in the mail, I, I can't be responsible for that is all I'm saying. All right. My question. Afterpay recently completed a capital raising followed a strong on its share price. True. This seems to be standard practice in the industry and makes logical sense for reasons which have previously been discussed in the podcast. The company intends to use the money raised to pursue growth opportunities, which may or may not be successful. Regardless of whether the growth strategy will be successful or not, the transaction related the transaction costs related to the capital raising were $14.6 million or 2.2% of the capital raised, he says. Should there be some sort of clawback provisions linked to such capital raisings to compensate shareholders if the growth strategy proposed is not successful? I think that's a, a reasonable idea, mate. Uh, he says, uh, for example, if after two years the acquisition turns out to be a failure, then the investment bank that provided advisory services should pay back a percentage of the fees. I'd love that idea. This might incentivize the industry to act in the interest of shareholders and not just collect fees for the sake of profit. Look forward to your take. I'm loving the hashtags, mate. So we got hashtag keep up the resistance to Insta doc and hashtag no TikTok doc. <laughs> I love it. There's more, there's more good stuff in the hashtags to come, mate. I'm, I'm, I think the hashtags are now my favorite part of this whole thing. Um, so keep up the resistance to Insta doc and no TikTok doc. Maybe that's my favorite. All right. Uh, what do you reckon, mate? Should, you, should we give Goldman Sachs and Macquarie a call? Say, guys, can we have some of the money back, please? I don't know. Like, I mean, here's the, here's the thing. You're right? not going to defend them, surely. Here's the thing. Like, I mean, All those right. guys are making some money. What's the problem? Let them have some money. <laughs> that's like, I mean, you know, that's what they do. They're investment bankers. In that case, Doc, how about I'll take 2.2% of your salary as, as my investment banking advice. What do you reckon? You got to pay me? But you have to first give me some investment banking <laughs> advice. Oh, that's easy. I can, I can write a presentation. So, so like, 2.2% of your like, salary, like, I'll write no, whatever so, presentation you want me to write. So here's the thing, right? Like, it is true that investment bankers are, or investment banks are going after these companies and saying, you know, maybe you should raise capital. But those <laughs> companies are also raising capital, right? Mm. And and Afterpay has probably done, you know, many other capital raises. Those capital raises have come in handy. So, uh, uh, like I, you know, the I think the this is really 
a question for investors to decide as to whether or not you want to invest in a company that's going to be raising capital and for raising capital there are going to be costs mm. and you know i think the question in my mind boils down to i don't you know i'd, I'd basically say this thus far mm. um after pace uh, capital raises have been very very good for investors right i mean mm. investors who bought in five years ago are sitting on like a lot of money right so mm. so stuff has worked out in many cases it does not work out i think that it, it ultimately it boils down to are you making the right investment decision and there are going to be costs like mm. i mean you know the asx charges 400 500000 dollars a year or something like that uh for companies to be listed mm. should, maybe mm. they should charge less right i mean so i think you know everybody wants to make a living here i would not have anything <laughs> you know uh, the millionaire factory uh, that the <laughs> goldman sachs has or the macquarie bank have yeah um, yep. i'm fine for them to make the money yep. um it ultimately comes down to us to make the decision as to where we want to invest and you know if this is a good investment it's a good investment and Sure, 2.2% sounds pretty high, but, you know, I'll leave it to the best judgment of the company. This is the bloke who doesn't want to pay 20 bucks for brokerage. You have to no, pay so, so, billion so, dollars to so, raise no, capital. No, so brokerage, <laughs> so brokerage, you and I have a different view. I'll, I'll quickly explain why. So here's oh, the no, thing. I've opened that gate. Oh, no, oh, my, oh, my reason for brokerage <laughs> being effectively zero uh, yeah. or should be zero is as twofold. One. Those people who are charging more for brokerage are simply being lazy or are just basically ripping people off because they can, right? Because people are being lazy. Mm -hmm. But number two, my biggest reason for um, for supporting uh, free brokerages, most of them are actually bringing international investing opportunities to Australian investors. I think that is fantastic overall, number one. Number two is if... If somebody wants to dollar cost average and buy shares of say, and most of this is because the internationals, so I use some examples, buy shares of Apple. Well, Apple shares are nearly 400 bucks. Mm -hmm. And if you want to buy shares in Amazon, well, Amazon, and those are US dollars, and Amazon shares are like 3,000 bucks. Mm -hmm. These guys are also allowing you to buy fractional interest, and the, you know, and the, in, if you want to buy one Apple share, you can mm. for three hundred bucks, which is yep. like you know, three hundred bucks yep. is effectively three hundred times one point five. It's like four hundred fifty or four hundred bucks. It's like six hundred US Australian dollars, right? Mm -hmm. So I mean, you could buy one share of Apple mm -hmm. for six hundred bucks and pay nothing. It doesn't cost you. But if you had to buy, pay twenty bucks on that or thirty bucks on that, that is a lot. So I think it is what I think that zero dollar thing does is for a true blue long-term investor mm. it really allows them to do long-term compounding all i'm saying is a 2.2 percent for capital raising is a lot of money compared oh, to whatever is. broker it might is. otherwise it cost. is it is but but i mean those guys can shop around right if there is somebody the, nah. if there was somebody like in the brokerage world equivalent is yeah. if there's somebody offering zero somebody charging you ripping you off at 20 you have the choice yeah. of going to zero if they have a choice of going to someone else who can offer them at 0.1 percent yeah well they should totally go for that one Maybe two point two percent happens to be the least available, <laughs> and maybe there's a business there. Maybe somebody can have actually a business saying, "I'll raise you capital, and I'll charge you only 05 percent." I have no view on after-based capital raising, but I am absolutely sure that shareholders are being ripped off by the fees that are being paid to all these advisory bobs. If you if you have to pay someone, forget the percentage. If you have to pay someone fifteen million dollars to raise capital. There's not fifty million dollars worth of work going into any of that sort of stuff. So that's right? what I'm saying, right? That maybe we should start United can start <laughs> we an go. advisory service. I like it. We will we will give afterpay advice on raising capital, and we'll only charge them half a million bucks. Multiple advisory, or are we doing it ourselves? Uh, could be multiple advisory. Mah Mahati Phillips advisory. What do you reckon? Uh, maybe Mahati Phillips. Phillips Capital. I like that. You know, that Motley Phillips would be bigger. You reckon? Yeah. But we would get less of the money. Bruce wouldn't give us all the cash. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but, yeah. but that's okay. We'll talk about it after the podcast. Okay. Bruce, if you're listening, it's okay. We're just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I Look, I, yeah, I, 
I, I have an issue with it. I, I, I have no view on the Afterpay one, right? I don't know either the company or the, the company raising the capital. I don't know who it was, so I can comment nicely without having to worry about individuals. Um, I think if you're if you're having to if you're having to pay someone fifteen million dollars to raise capital for you, either you're being taken to the cleaners or there's something in the in the process of that which is costing you way more money than it should. There's no there's no process that costs that much money. Um, maybe you're being sold a dud by the bank. Maybe you're paying fees or services you otherwise don't need. Um, I'm pretty sure that many Australian boards are convinced by smart looking, you know, fancy dressed investment banks who walk in and say, oh, raise your money. Here's what it'll cost you. Here's the benefits. And look, it only cost you 2.2%. That's no big deal. And I'm sure that there are really good reasons they present for it. I'm also very, very sure that some of the better capital allocators in the world aren't out there raising capital at those sort of extortionate fees. Um, certainly, yeah, there's, there's there's better ways to do it, put it that way. I don't, I don't blame anyone for trying to make some money. So the investment bankers, good luck to them. I'm just not sure the Australian boards as a, as a group are doing such great value or, or doing such a great job that the 2.2% fees have been close to justified. Is that too cynical? Oh, no, no. I, I mean, yeah. So like, I mean, and my point was really that, you know, if the 2.2% is mm. is high, there's a, there's a, you know, in a truly competitive market, somebody should be able to come in and say, I'll, I'll do it for 1%. Right. Oh, exactly. And yeah, I, <laughs> there is uh, sometimes competition doesn't work. That was all I'd say. <laughs> We've seen plenty of cases where if everyone charges two percent, everyone makes a lot of money. You wouldn't go in and offer less if you didn't have to, right? Yeah. Well, if I wanted to steal business, yeah. I would. Yeah. Like if I can have all you the start, business, you don't start a price war though. Well, if I yeah, well that's the thing. The, the Australian banks aren't exactly cutting each other's throats on pricing. Let me put well, it that. I way. don't love the Australian banks. <laughs> Let's move on. Question from Colin. I have a, before that was we'll, we'll spend the entire podcast on a tangent. I have a question for the pod regarding super. I have my super with Host Plus, uh, where I can invest uh, in, up to eighty percent in shares and ETFs, and the remaining twenty percent is with their own brand international fund. My question is. Who owns the shares and the funds? Shares I own outside of Super with Chess and are mine. So what is the structure for Super funds and shares held with Choice Plus Super? I recently had a conversation with a rep for another Super company <laughs> and he made the concerning remarks regarding Host Plus and that they are most greatly affected by the economic lockdown because they are not getting the contributions as their members are not working due to restaurants, etc. being closed. Are Super funds at risk? Will they be backed by the government as the government changed the rules for super companies and have caused the stress to the business model? Thanks for the great work. As a member of EO and Discovery, I was brave enough to buy on the dip thanks to Motley Fool training. I'm very happy with the results. Full on Colin. Colin, well done. Good work for, for buying in the dip, mate. That was a tough time to be investing, but well done on, uh, on being brave and, and getting your money to work, mate. Hopefully, you've done pretty well as a result. Doc, uh, super funds and money held therein. Yeah, so like I actually was going to say you should answer this one because <laughs> I, I know not much about cool. Host Plus yep. and I don't know how their structure actually works and I have no idea what this Host Plus international fund is and how it works <laughs> yeah, no and what it does. I So, sorry, Colin. I'm not the right person to answer this one. All right, so Colin, I don't know everything about Host Plus. Um, there, there's a couple of so there's a couple of things that I would say. First is that there was some concern when the money was being withdrawn from Super that somehow it would cause some sort of super collapse. And there are scenarios in which you know a fund might have had to liquidate illiquid assets at fire sale prices. We've certainly seen that in the past. Um, when when things get stressful, then funds have to or companies have had to do funny things. You know, if if you're if you're trying to be a seller and there's no buyers. You don't get to name your own price, right? You get to take whatever price is being offered. And if Host Plus or someone else had to offload unlisted assets at super cheap prices, it may well have caused some liquidity issues. More broadly, though, the rest of the portfolio is at share at current share prices, right? So 
if I want to liquidate my super fund today, I take the ten grand out, which is a terrible idea, as I've ranted about before. But let's assume let's assume I'm doing that. Um, I'm going to sell at today's price, and the assets are largely listed assets anyway. So there's no inherent stress there. There may be some if they have to sell unlisted assets. So let's say they've got owner share at a bridge. <laughs> it's just an easy one, right? Um, if they have to sell that tomorrow and there's no buyers, then they've got to kind of drop their price and drop the price and drop the price so you finally entice someone to come and buy the asset. We saw that with property companies during the GFC. So there are circumstances where it happens. Hopefully, we won't have any stress for super funds. And hopefully, if we do, they'll learn the lesson and never have it again. So let me put that out there. I don't have reason to believe that any super fund, particularly industry super funds, are at any meaningful risk, nor do I think if it got to that point, they would find a way to... Yeah, they're, they're not for profits, right? They'll find a way to merge with someone else. So maybe Host Plus would merge with Australian Super or something else and find their way to make it work. There are circumstances, I guess, like if you if you extrapolate too far, there's, there's circumstances where it could actually be problematic, um, but I don't expect it to be likely anytime soon. In terms of an, as a rep, another rep for another super company, you should discount that. Uh, I don't know who it is. I'm glad I don't know who it is because I can talk about it um, without, without slandering anyone in particular. Um, you know... I, <laughs> It's like asking someone from Coke if they should, you know, if you should buy Pepsi. Um, of course, they're going to say, "Well, those guys over there, I'd be careful." Um, just enough of a seed of doubt, right? So, look, no, there's no guarantee in anything. The money is held in trust, so there's no, there's no likelihood that a collapse of the fund itself is pro- is likely, or that there's any sort of anything nefarious or unreasonable going on. It might just be the overall fund itself is worth less, and it, it can have an extreme. Yeah, there's a scenario under which something happens, but we're talking about, you know. X number of standard deviations away from the average. It's unlikely to happen in any of our lifetimes. But again, is it possible? Yeah, I guess, um, theoretically. I hope Host Plus will learn. That being said, mate, for all of that, if you've got the Choice Plus product, you're not investing in those particular assets anyway. You're investing in your own assets. And in that case, the assets themselves, if they're listed shares, if you put 80% of your money in that and 20% in the international fund, very, very good chance that they're not the inve- the impacted assets. It'll be people in those pre-mixed options that have some of those unlisted investments that might be at risk, if any. But again, I, I can't stress enough. I really don't expect any risk at all with super funds. Um, will it be backed by the government? Probably, oh, there's no guarantee. There's no plan. I would imagine there would be, quite honestly. I don't imagine the government wants to have, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of people losing their super. So I think we'd find a solution somewhere, but I, I can't say for sure. Anything on that, Doc, or will we move on? Let's move on. A question from Rob. Just getting started investing. And the plan is to drop a grand into a global 100 and another grand into a healthcare via Comsec Pocket in month one. We're moving into individual stocks. I obviously need to use the real Comsec or similar. I understand the commission is significantly higher. So my question is, to establish a portfolio that is suitably diversified, i.e. 20 plus stocks, what is the advised dollar value per investment to do this? E.g. if I can set aside 15 grand per year to invest, do I get three lots of 5K investments at four-month intervals or five lots of 3K investments at shorter intervals? The fees are higher, but it's more diversified and would it only take me four years to hit 20 stocks versus seven years with the bigger chunks? I guess the real question is, what is the size of the average trade? Hope this isn't too convoluted. Love the podcast, Rob. And he says, PS, enjoy Dubbo. I was in Dubbo at the time. And hashtag get doc on Insta. And PPS, thanks for get a better rate. I did. Well done, Rob. Congratulations on getting a better rate, mate. That's awesome news. Um, and again, if you haven't already, dear listener, call your bank. Get a better rate. They don't need the money, I promise you. Okay, mate. Um, minimum investment. So there's kind of two questions here. There's kind of like a keeping commission to a reasonable level, but also trying to separate or balance that against getting to 15 stocks or have many stocks as quickly as physically possible 
We can't, again, tell Rob specifically what he should do. And as always, none of our investment is personal. This is all just general guidance in, in general. So, Rob, if this applies, great. If it doesn't, sorry about that. Um, but we can't give personal advice. Doc, what do you reckon? 15 grand? Do you... How, how, would you di- how would you divide that up per year? How would you divide that up to get yourself a diversified portfolio and keep your costs down? Yeah, so like an average trade, let's say, costs you 20 bucks. Um, yeah, 15, 20 bucks. 15, 20 bucks, and, and, yep. and, and it shouldn't. That's a different, that's a different topic. Should <laughs> I cost, mentioned that earlier. Yeah, it's, it should cost exactly zero, but that's a different matter. <laughs> um, but if you're stuck with those people who are charging you that, then well, well one way to look at it is that if you're going to buy... Um, you know, three thousand dollars worth of investment, put three thousand bucks mm-hmm. into an investment. You're spending fifteen bucks for that. Mm-hmm. Probably okay. Half a percent. Half a percent. You know, you could even drop it down mm. to fifteen hundred, and it would, you know, bring it to one percent. If you do fifteen hundred, you could actually buy ten positions over a period of time, mm. and that's you know, that's how I would look at. I'd try to keep it at that one percent region. Uh, you know. Two percent is also okay. You could also get away with two percent, but I mean, you know, the one percent and lower is is really good, and that allows you to buy multiple positions over a period of time. That's what. I, so that's one way to go about that. So it doesn't necessarily have to be chunkier, you know, five k investments. It could just be fifteen hundred or two thousand bucks put across multiple positions. So that allows you to diversify quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how I would. I think go about it, but again, varies from person to person. Yeah, I I find this a really difficult one, Doc. I um, so generally speaking, I, I've always said to people, keep your trading cost below one percent. Now, if you're paying, if you're with Comsec, that's twenty bucks to trade. Let's just pick a number. That'd make it two thousand dollars investments, and I think you keep your your, your broker cost to exactly one percent, and that's a pretty good starting point. A couple of quick things. Um, and again, I don't want to advertise for Comsec. That God knows they don't need the help, but let's go with that. Um, the right now, if you buy shares for less than a thousand dollars with Comsec, you can trade for ten bucks a trade. So the average trade is twenty. If you bet it's to be more than a thousand bucks, but you can do thousand dollar lots for ten dollars. Um, if you're a Comsec customer, if you want to deal with them, and if you don't, that's great. Do, do, do something else by all means. Um, again, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not here to spruit Comsec, but I reckon that's a pretty good start. So you could buy over the course of a year fifteen thousand dollar lots and pay 1% brokerage per trade. I would absolutely do that. I think, it, remember, 1% is a lot, or 2% is a lot in absolute terms. But if you can if you can invest 2%, for example, of $1,000, and leave that $1,000 to compound to two, then four, then eight, then 16 grand, spending 20 bucks to get a $15,000 profit, it's a pretty good deal. So I wouldn't I wouldn't die on the dish. I used to be really, really struggling on this. I used to be like, no, less than 1%, gotta be less than 1%. Don't waste your money, don't let the bank eat your money. I still agree with that. And to Doc's point, you know, lower brokerage is better than higher brokerage. But I have to say, if you've got an investment opportunity writ large as a group, each individual companies won't all do well. But as a group, if you can double, triple, quadruple your investment portfolio, 20 bucks is a cheap price to pay almost regardless of how much you spend. So I would, if I was me, probably I'd, I'd probably do um, 15 $990 trades. Honestly, Rob, I think, you know, that's going to cost you 10 bucks a trade, keeps your brokerage under 1% or just on 1%. That's a, I think that's a pretty good way to do it. After that, maybe you want to start adding, you know, 1500 or two grand, two grand at a time. Because uh, you've already got a portfolio that's diversified by then, you can afford to maybe trade a little less frequently. Any thoughts on that, Doc? No, I have nothing to add. Very good. Thank you, Rob. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Next question comes from Blake. Hey, Scott, Doc, I have a question for the podcast, which is remarkable and lucky because this is a podcast and we're doing member mailbag so blake you've, you've dropped in the right place what are your thoughts on the online betting public companies 
Just to name a few, I am watching Points Bet, DraftKings, and 888 Holdings. I mean, that's Triple Eight Holdings, but in any case, I believe this market is massive, both domestic and internationally, with a few of the above US listed. It would be a bet, I don't know if he means the pun or not, but I'll assume, I'll assume it's pun intended, that eventually the states which have current regulations against betting would, be a, would change and therefore a massive, massive growth potential. Would love to hear you discuss. Thank you, Blake. And Doc, sports betting in the US was originally only in, I want to say Vegas, Atlantic City, and maybe that was about it. Plenty of underground betting and, you know, people ringing Vegas with phone accounts and stuff. But broadly speaking, there was federal rules saying the only states that could do it were those two states. So Atlantic City is a city, but you were, you know, you get my point. Um, that was overturned by a US court, I want to say last year, I think. Effectively now, any state can, should they choose to, allow sports betting, which, as Blake rightly points out, there's 300 million Americans who can suddenly if they choose to, gamble at pretty much, you know, whatever state they're in, as long as the state itself allows it. And most states are for both gamble, for tax revenue reasons and to some degree because they want to send money across state lines. In theory, that should mean, as he says, a massive opportunity. Yeah, so I think the general thesis is correct. Um, points bet is, is a recommendation that we have made in um, in, e- in EO, Extreme nice. Opportunities. So, Free recommendation. Um, uh, Free recommendation, and it's 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 along those lines of the, along that line of thesis that uh, Blake you've pointed out, which mm-hmm. is basically that the we all know that there's there's a, there's a huge black market, for example, in the U.S. for uh, uh, the sort of the sort of you know online gambling or whatever you want to call it, sports betting. Um, betting is a form of gambling, and we know that people do it. It's legal, mm-hmm. <laughs> or it is illegally being done, which which of <laughs> course means tax dollars are being lost, right. which of course means uh, cities and states want it. Uh, Don't stand between a politician and a tax revenue. Yeah. So, uh, so so that that has resulted in that market opening up, that market is huge, and there are multiple companies that are trying to gain a share of that market. Mm. Points bet has a really good team that has been doing a really good job of stitching up deals and uh, getting into those those markets. Um, I actually have not looked very carefully at any of the other ones, so I don't have a view. Mm. On, on it, it's just again, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit like the buy now, pay later thing, right? When someone sees that there's a big market, um, and the market, you know, is pried open for whatever reason, multiple people um, r- run for it, which is what we'd expect capitalism mm-hmm. to do, um, right? Right? You know, capitalism would say that you know, when there's money to be made, there'll be companies showing up, uh, individuals showing up, entrepreneurs showing up, trying to trying to make you know so you know, one needs mm. to find the i guess the rule breakers from the rule uh, you know the rule fakers here <laughs> um that's that's the challenge we really like points bet i think it's it's doing a good good job mm. um as i said i have not looked very carefully at the others to have an opinion about the others but yeah i like the market i like the opportunity um and you know the, all of these things can actually work on technology so it's you know basically stuff runs on the cloud you can create these bets to be run on your you know you can basically make those bets via a smartphone and it it can be really really a high margin business. Uh, of course, you have to pay out the winnings and things like that. But you know, as, lo- as long as you've done a good job of working that out, yep. um, I think the, the, the sort of business can be very high margin. Um, you know, it's nice. yeah. so yeah. That, that gives you an idea of what we think about it. Very good. Um, I don't have a strong view on any of those companies, but I do think that it's a growing sector, and that's often a good opportunity to find some uh, business. Uh, as always, trying to work out whether it's the innovators, the disruptors, the incumbents that win these sort of scenarios is, is an open question. Um, and it's got to just be careful of the dynamics there. But Doc's much closer to it. So if he's recommending points bet, 
I reckon that's probably a good idea. All right, we're going to move on to the next question from Carmel, the female listener. Love it, Carmel. Thank you. Hi, Scott and Doc. Thanks for the podcast. As a female in her 50s and being new to investing, I find it educational and relevant. Thank you, Carmel. My husband and I always seem to have something else to do with our money and share investing was only talked about. But for my 2020 New Year's resolution, I decided it was time to get into it. Love those resolutions. I spent January and February reading heaps of books, watching YouTube and webinars. I had a great spreadsheet with about 20 companies I was watching. Then, along came March and COVID. My spreadsheet has a column with all my company's prices at their lowest. So I sat for a bit, too chicken to take the plunge. With hindsight, stupid, as most of the companies in my list have bounced back okay. I should have bagged some bargains. Anyway, I finally took the plunge. My question is one of the companies I bought did a share consolidation in June. They paid a higher than normal dividend and a return on capital for every five shares I held. I now hold four. (laughs) A 20% reduction in shares. Why do companies do this? Is it an accounting trick to make their earnings per share look better in the annual accounts or a sign that all is not well? I would love your opinion on why this was done and what it really says about the company's position. Thanks heap for reading my question, Carmel. Carmel, thank you for the question. Good on you for getting into it. You know what? It's We've all got those war stories, right? The ones we should have, could have, would have bought and you're not alone. So don't feel don't feel silly. You're certainly not stupid. Um, very reasonable if you're a new investor to see share prices fall and go, man, I'm not, I'm not touching that. Um, again, hindsight, we know that things went well. And I think they probably will more often than not. This hopefully will be a, a formative experience for you. But you know what? If you got invested and shares have fallen further, you might've got scared out of it, sold and given up on investing. So I'm not, I'm not gonna be too critical of anyone who's in that position. As I said, would have been nice if you'd been able to do it, but um, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Right, if shares were down tw- another forty percent today, you'd feel smart for not doing it. So don't don't beat yourself up. Um, you've got going, you got started, and you're you're getting invested, which is fantastic. Doc, talk to me about share consolidations. So we normally talk about share splits when companies say, "I've got one share for thirty; it's now two shares worth fifteen each." Your shareholding doesn't change, actually. By the way, the numbers change slightly, but your overall the value of the company and the value of your shares in total don't change. What about a share consolidation or sometimes a reverse split, which I love that phrase, a reverse split. It's consolidation is a much smarter one. What's going on? Yeah, so the reverse split most often, uh, more often than not, happens for a very simple reason. <laughs> Suppose your shares are trading now at one cent, you know, um, you don't want your shares to <laughs> trade at one cent. Or um, Then what you do is you, well, you could take 10 of those shares and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, consolidate them. And now all of a sudden your shares are trading at 10 cents. Mm. If you want to make your share price look $1, mm. well, you could take 100 of those you mm-hmm. know, and turn them into a $1 <laughs> stock price. So sometimes, sometimes you know, there's a negative connotation in terms of, you know, uh, if something becomes a one cent share, then it's like a penny stock. You know, one cent becomes a two cent stock, then mm-hmm. you know, it goes up by 100%, right? That drives a certain type of dynamic. And so sometimes yeah. boards uh, <laughs> spend a lot of the energy uh, trying <laughs> to engineer, uh, you know, stock prices. So one of the things that they can do mm, is the is the reverse of a split, which is a you know consolidation. consolidation. Yep. Yeah, that, that's that's really. I have no idea what this company is, but <laughs> but that would be my guess. <laughs> Yeah, look, so generally speaking, that, that's exactly my view. I completely agree with Doc Carmel. Um, when a company decides to, to do that, um, they're generally trying to manage the share price. Same with they split the shares, right? There's no sense doing either of them really in, in any significant sense. Whether you've got one $10 share, two $5 shares or 10 $1 shares, it's the same thing. Um, now, some companies want to have a lower share price per share because in theory it makes the shares more 
air quotes, affordable. And we all know that's not true because spending $10 to buy one $10 share or $10 shares doesn't make any difference. But, you know, affordability is one thing. On the other hand, if shares get too cheap, if they're one cent each, you can do a 100 for one consolidation. All of a sudden, you've got a $1 share price, which seems much more reasonable and respectable, right? Somehow, it's it's you know up in the big boys rather than rather little cheap penny stocks. Same business, again, same same earnings, same, uh, hopefully earnings, same market cap, just a different number of shares with different prices. So it's all a bit of a, all a bit all over the place. Now, I will say that in Aurora's case, this was the company that Carmel asked about, there are some different reasons for doing it. Now, um, it's a lot to do with tax. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail, but effectively what happened with that one, there was a special dividend. So literally a dividend that was paid out. So cash, franking credits, all that kind of stuff. They also did what they call a capital return. Now, I'm not going to bore you with that too much, but what it basically means is they're not paying you a dividend, they're paying you back some of the capital that shareholders have paid in, which means it's taxed differently. Effectively, long-term capital gains tax rates start to kick in. So if I pay a dividend, I've got to pay full income tax on that. If I get a capital return, well, then it's a capital gain or loss, which again, in theory, carries some different tax consequences. So look, you know, it's 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 one of those things. Um, it's, I'm I'm... I think it's all a little bit too, a um, little bit too cute. But the finance boffins would say, well, if there's genuine value creation because they're getting used using the franking credits because they're using capital gains tax, then maybe shells are actually better off for having it that way. I can't argue with that either, right? So in some cases, it is justified. Certainly, Telstra has done it before. Woolies has done it before. Harvey Norman's done it before with what they call off-market buybacks, where they basically let the value of the franking credits accrue to people who wanted them. Um, and so they just offered different ways of people being able to access their shares, which does actually create small amounts of shareholder value. I think it's a little bit too over the top, frankly. Generally, I don't know about Aurora in detail. I had a look at the detail, but not the, not the, not the specifics. Um, yeah, your your your. I think your um, your intuition is right. <laughs> Feel free to ignore it all. Uh, look at the business itself. Look at the profit. Look at the look at the total market cap. The rest is just noise. So yeah, take the money if they're offering it to you. But whether or not you hold the shares or own the shares, very much a story of okay, what do you own now? How much is it and what it's what is it worth? The rest is just kind of window dressing. Anyone on that, mate? No, sir. Beautiful. A question from uh, uh, is, is Instagram hashtag is, or handlers, hey, pards. I should be sure for partner. <laughs> uh, Scott, I hope you're well, mate. A question. When you and Doc have a good stock, double or triple in value, you refer to this as a double or triple bagger. So we, we do that, you know, the stock goes up 10 times a 10 bagger. Just a, just a shorthanded way of talking about, you know, the, the, the gains you've made. It comes from baseball, by the way, where, where a base is a bag. So a double bagger was, you know, you've got two bases. Um, that kind of idea. I think it was Peter Lynch who, who popularized it. Mm. Um, so, you know, we all want 10 baggers and ideally 20 baggers would be nice. Um, so that, that's why we do that. But he says, what do you call a stock when it goes down a half or a quarter bag? <laughs> Would love to have some new terminology for around the office. Keep up the good work. Now, here's a new hashtag for me. Hashtag get doc on Omegle. Do you know Omegle? I have no idea what I had, that is. I had to ask him. I actually looked it up. It's a it's a website where you jump on and you can talk to random people around the world on video. So there you go. They He wants you on Omegle. It's not my thing. Anyway. Uh, I like this. New hashtags. We've got a few. No no, no doc on TikTok. No TikTok doc. Get doc on Omegle. It's all happening. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. All right. Do we have a phrase, mate, for a half bag or a quarter bag? 
<laughs> you, you know, like more often than not, we here's uh, in the psychology of investors to talk about winners, yeah, right? Yeah, so, right. so everyone <laughs> always talks about, oh, my stock is up, you know, two x, three x, four x, five bagger. Nobody's telling me, oh, that stock that I bought, you know, is down <laughs> like ninety percent, right? Um, uh, I had I had once a uh, shareholding in a company called Linus, you know. I think I lost like 90% of my money oh. in it. And that that company too, I think did a share consolidation in one day. I said, huh, how's the share price up back to like $2 mm. or something? Oh, it turns out it was a share consolidation. <laughs> <laughs> so but anyways, so <laughs> there's a reason why there's no terminology for things that go down. People don't want to talk about it. Um, but yeah, like, you know, if you want to come up with one and uh, suggest, uh, we'll, we, you know, uh, and we'll try to make it catch up or catch on. <laughs> well, if, you, if you had to guess, mate, what would you go with? you have any, any ideas? I don't know. Down the, <laughs> you know? Um, a half bag, quarter bag kind of works for me. There's something in that. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah. I don't know. Like, I mean, it's like... It's really, the reason I like the bagger terminology is mm. that you know it seems like you're filling bags. Oh, okay. Right. Whereas if you, you know you had you know you had you, you know one bag now you've got you know two bags you know du- you know that's a double right. Um, you've got a three bagger you've got three bags full. So you know you had a bag and it's become a half bag maybe a quarter <laughs> bag you know empty bag. <laughs> empty bag I like that. Vanishing bag. Vanishing bag yes yes I, um, so. emptying the bags yeah there's something there something there we we'll possibly spend too long on this one uh, and doc most importantly the biggest question is are you going to get on Omegle after having this hashtag are you are you interested in the website are you going to be spending your all your spare time on Omegle talking to strangers around the world? Uh no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Maybe, maybe we should go back to get dog on Insta. I think we'll start there and then work work it out from there. All right, question from Joshua, mate. We get through a heap of these, which is awesome. G'day, Phils. Given the current global climate, what are your thoughts on investing in non-developed markets? I hold the IIND ETF, which I'm going to assume is India, and I'm thinking of selling. And it mustn't be as given COVID, I'm thinking it will underperform compared to other markets. Interested to hear your thoughts. All right, Doc. So investing internationally, we like that generally speaking. Mm-hmm. There is this thing called COVID. We've heard about that. Yeah. The IIND is the beta shares India ETF. Mm-hmm. He's saying he's going to underperform because he thinks India will underperform. But more broadly, what do you think about investing in non-developed markets generally? And then what about right now? Yeah, so, so in general, I'm a big fan of investing in sort of the developing regions because... Yeah, by definition, if, if if the region is developing or if regions are developing, then by definition they should have higher growth rates than you know the OECD world. You know we are happy here in Australia if we get two point two five, uh, you know two percent growth. Um, many of these countries should, many of the developing countries should be growing at six, eight, ten percent right. over the long term. Um, that by definition should mean if the shares are priced appropriately should. You know, typically give you a higher rate of returns, and often what happens is that the shares are not priced appropriately. Yeah, and if 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 the shares are expensive and the growth rate is high, that doesn't help. What really would help is if the shares are not expensive and the long term growth rate mm. is high. Mm. So that's the question to answer. I haven't looked at this particular ETF, so I don't know, don't have a view. But in general, I think you know there there are certain sectors that have been sold off like for example you know a company like hdfc bank has been sold off mm-hmm. uh but its results are still solid it has mm-hmm. still reported really really good you know earnings growth so um 
you know, that to me looks like an opportunity versus, mm. um, you know, paying, a, you know, that's a, the stock that usually trade on a very high PE, right? So, uh, because of the growth it has delivered over the, you know, over the past decade or so. Mm. So, that's the thing to consider. Um, just like any other market, right? I mean, the Australian market has been sold off, the American market was sold off. So, I mean, any other market has been sold off because of COVID. With specifics to India, I think the biggest question mark that I have, and mm-hmm. I don't have a good answer to this, is um, India is right now going through the biggest unemployment, um, you know, all right, uh, rate highest unemployment rates, uh, number of people that are unemployed, mm-hmm. it's phenomenally high, is and has been has basically been increasing. Wow. Right? Um, and that is, is it COVID related matter or is it more kind of no, broadly? Is, no, no, this is before COVID because right, okay. I think uh, job creation had over the last couple of years at least has been abysmal. Has really been abysmal. So India is a country with a lot of young people. Uh, it's a it's a, by demographic wise, it's very young. The average age of an Indian is like eighteen or nineteen. Yeah, right. Something like that. Yep. That says so the youngest demographic probably among the whole world. But there's no jobs right now, and um, that's a combination of many different things: lack of infrastructure, lack of investments, lack of policies mm-hmm. that create investments, and things like that. Uh, and the pandemic has only made it worse. Mm. So interesting. Okay. Um, there is that factor. So, you know, it's a bit of like a coil spring that yeah. is... Uh, that was the phrase I was going to use, but keep going. Yeah, yeah th- that we're waiting for it to uncoil, unsp- you know, and and uh, do its thing. So a lot of potential in that market. There's certainly some very interesting companies mm-hmm. in that market. Um, I mentioned HDFC Reliances, for example. Reliance Industries is another huge, uh, huge, mm-hmm. huge company. Reliance Industries is a company that at, at that scale which is getting investments from the likes of Google, Facebook, and mm-hmm. so on. So, but yeah, the the underlying economic fundamentals right mm-hmm. now are really, really not good. It's a fascinating one, man. I, I, to your point about Coral Spring, there's, I've, I've invested in some businesses before that I thought had really good potential. And they end up being what I like to call gunner businesses. So they're gonna do that, they're gonna do this, and they're gonna do that, but they never really got around to it. Never got, somehow something got in the way. I find it remarkable. You look at China and India side by side, similar populations. In theory, India had everything going for it, right? It had the rule of law, it had the British kind of system, the Western kind of, you know, not that not that it's better necessarily, but it was the way the rest of the world was being done. So some some degree, you kind of had this young, you know, massive population doing things the way the rest of the world did them, largely. And again, you're an expert in the country, I'm not. But from the outside, it just struck me as something that really should have had such a huge potential, right? This this gunner idea that for for twenty years it could have been the next big thing, and it's never quite got there. Do you do, do you? I mean, as an investor, do you put some money there just because eventually, if it gets out of its own way, you want to have some money there, or is it one of those things where you're going to say, "I'll wait to see some some positive kind of success or momentum before I go and start investing in those places"? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. So. Uh I have not had a direct like so. There are some companies you can invest in directly if you've you know if you for example via American ADRs, um, mm. HDFC is an, is an example. I've been looking at HDFC for a long time and yeah. I have not yet pulled the trigger on you that mentioned one. Mentioned before, yeah, yeah. Uh, as, it's a very very good company, really well run, and maybe this is the time to uh, to buy a company like that. I think the problem I have is is twofold. I think India has been undone to some extent. Part of part of the thing is that you can't 
So India has been in many ways for a long time trying to leapfrog what I'd call the industrial age and and become an IT or you know a mobile or a, you know a, a software superpower mm. and that kind of works and kind of does not work okay. because i think you can't i think you need to you need to do the industrial thing you need to have the infrastructure to create consumption and mm. so on right yeah, and i think okay. that 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 is is lacking and i mean again there's an infra- if you don't have mm, high speed mm. internet well can really people work from home and do things yeah. on the internet right i think those yeah. are the things um, that have been holding the country back mm. uh, so so that's that number 2 is i think india is very complex labor laws right and okay. one of the things that have been a big driver for china <laughs> is that you can get cheap labor and you the yes. government can organize yeah. cheap labor right and therefore it's one of the it's one of the hardest things from a developing world a developed world perspective i should say and again i know nothing about it specifically but on one hand as someone living in a country that benefits from you know really good protections labor protections good laws you kind of want those i certainly want those to be true of people around the world it's also another truism though that most countries that have developed have gone through a period of effectively very low cost, low protection labor laws that actually gave a country that sort of start, right? And and those who say, I'd like both, please. I'd like I'd like I'd like the economic opportunity, but I want those really I won't say restrictive laws, but but you know, what we would call modern labor laws. It's a tough one, right? Yeah. It's it's kind of the individual versus the country. The the country does better if the individuals do worse. If the individuals are kind of better treated, better off the country itself does overall less well and maybe development is, is kind of stunted because of that. Yeah, so I think I've long held the belief that labor laws, exactly. Like, so India's strong protection on labor laws, it's not that, you know, these they're demanding um, high um, wages. That's not the problem. Like, the wages are low because the labor is, you know, in many, pay, in many parts unskilled. I think where the problems start creeping up is for some company, let's I'm just going to use some random company, so Nike, to open up a factory I think the liabilities that Nike has to, uh, I guess, own up to, mm. to run a factory, yeah, right, would be the stumbling block for Nike to actually have an investment, yeah, yeah. right. And so there's that part, which has I think been a big issue. Then the, the other part has been the, the various governments across periods of time have, for t- this is for a technology point of view, mm. have demanded that oh, you know. Uh, you should do technology transfer, uh, mm-hmm. or we want thirty percent of the parts, or thirty yeah, percent right. of the parts to be sourced from India. So I think those, okay, yeah. in theory, are good good things to have. Mm-hmm. But you know, if people, if you tell people that you have to, you know, thirty percent of things have to be sourced from a particular location, that creates hurdles for them. That therefore right. means that they can't get the supply chains that they're used to using. Right, right, right. And, and then that creates impediments. So I think there's been a lot of impediments like this, along with infrastructure, yeah, yeah. that. Uh, have, have stood in the way. Um, there's been a lot of, you know, as I said, um, uh, corporate success. Yeah, yeah. Right? So you could still invest in the stock market and actually do well. You know, you could be invested in Reliance and have done phenomenally well. You could, you know, so I think that, the, and there's a lot hmm. of private entrepreneurial success. But I think um, right, okay. if you're looking for like a huge GDP driven, GDP growth yeah, yeah. driven thing, yeah. uh, which is what you get from an index really, um, mm, then, sure. you know, uh, then I think, you know, then you have to be careful of the valuations you're paying. Nice, good moment. Hey, last question before we finish off. I like this one because a lot of questions about retirement and some some old listeners, some new listeners. Question from Liam though. Uh, this one's absolutely hot off the presses, Doc, so you haven't got this one. I'm going <laughs> to surprise you with it. Uh, came in about, how many? Let's go about five minutes ago. Uh, hey team, this is from Liam. Really appreciate your in-depth thoughts and discussions twice a week, every week. You're welcome, mate. I've noticed when discussing long-term outlooks, you always seem to talk about retirement age. 
65 to 70, as a marker of investment results or goals. Is this how you look at your personal investments and Motley Fool recommendations? As there is a FIRE community building, now FIRE in this context is financially independent, retire early, F-I-R-E. As there is a FIRE community building, should their goals be skewed rather to the age of 40 to 50 as a time frame? What are your thoughts on FIRE in and of itself? Thanks in advance if you've taken the time to answer the question. He says, and please ask Doc, would you go to Mars when Elon succeeds? That's <laughs> from Liam. So um, I'm going to leave the last question. I'm going to ask you to hold that one because we'll finish with that one, Doc. That'll be our last one. Uh, in the meantime, though, we talk about, we do retire about retirement. That's kind of the logical point at which you go from accumulation to living off the proceeds of your accumulation, um, whether it's dividends, whether it's selling down shares, whatever. At some point, you stop working and the, <coughs> excuse me, your portfolio's got to do the heavy lifting. What about for the FIRE group who want to be financially independent, want to retire early? These people are, if you don't know, generally pretty frugal. They try and scrimp and save and spend as little as they possibly can, put as much as they can away for investing, often into shares, with the hope that instead of retiring at 65 or 70, as Liam says, they can retire at 45 or 50 instead. What do you reckon, mate? Are we, are we missing something by using 65 to 70 as the retirement age as our investing goal? And do you think about that for your service? No, so I don't think we're missing anything. Like, I mean, even if you have a retirement goal of, say, 50, right? Um, I mean, e- the way you're going to get retired at 50 is either you have been phenomenally successful with your investments, right? Or you have got a phenomenal inheritance or you're just, <laughs> you know, you were just born rich. Mm. Um, th- those are, I mean, those are the ways in which you're going to be retiring at 50, right? Otherwise, mm-hmm. really the effective thing is, even in the fire crowd, as you exactly just pointed out, right? You know, so they are being frugal with the way they're spending, right? So yep. their, their consumer behavior patterns are different yep. uh, as, as a number one. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, they're living well below their means right. and, and they're saving. So even for them too, right? They, you know, I mean, anyone today on average, and an average, average Australian is expected mm. to live what a male 82, 83, yeah. something like that. Yeah, but some people, most people probably 85, 86 probably, yeah. yeah. So, so and, and, and people born today are probably expected to live maybe until like, mm. you know, Maybe ninety, yep. something like that. Yep. Maybe hundred. Um, so it doesn't matter where you retire; you still need to have that time frame yeah. of life, yep. and that you should be able to spend. You should have enough money to be able to spend through that period. So I think that's the lens. In terms of recommendations, I really don't think about retirement in context. And the reason okay. I don't think about it is a: I'm not running really an income. I'm not really running a fund mm. for. Uh, retirees, right? Yeah, right? Or and I'm not I'm not uh, an income fund. Yeah. Um, so um, the service, like in, we just, in this case, we're talking about like say extreme opportunities. That service has a mandate: higher risk, higher return, uh, smaller cap. Mm. That that skews towards the riskier side. So I'm just thinking when I'm mm. recommending, I'm really thinking just from my mandate point of view, mm. not about any specific individual, not about specific circumstances. And and I, I'm not really even thinking 30 years. I'm basically thinking my horizon really on these investments is thinking about five years, right? Yeah, okay. and, and if I think about five years, and I, you know, do I think this company can do something that I believe this thesis can deliver mm. in five mm. years? And that's, that's really it. Mm. Um, and then how people use it is really up to them, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, a person who's going to be retiring in 20 years can have a portion, you know, a person who's retired could have a portion of their portfolios in growth and some in income and so on. So that, mm. again, that, that really depends on what strategies people are applying on their own. Nice. Um, 
I, yeah, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna restate Liam's question because I think what he's saying is when we talk about compounding, we talk about how much you might have by retirement, right? And so when the the point I'm always trying to impress on people is the longer you have to compound, the more money you'll have when you finish, and the long, more you put aside now, the more you'll have when you finish. And so that's you know the longer, uh, Liam, to your point. Honestly, if you want to retire at 50, that's cool. If you're working another 15 years instead, though, you've got another couple of compounds there, right? The average return of uh, a couple of doublings, the average return of the market's 10% a year. So doubling every seven years using the rule of 72. If you don't know that one, look it up. Uh, rule of 72. So if you get seven, 10% a year, double every seven years. If you've got 14 years, that's two doubles. So whatever you have at 50, in theory, you should have four times that, double and a double again by 65. So it's just a question of how long you let your money compound before you start to withdraw it. There is nothing in my investing nor Docs has already said that says I'm only going to buy this company because I'm going to retire at 65 or 70. It's just more a sense of we're trying to think about our overall portfolio creation and and kind of, you know, performance so that we have the maximum amount of money by the time we stop working. Um, now, if you want to stop working earlier, then great. Just remember, it's much, much harder just because you haven't let compounding do its thing. If you retire at 40 rather than 70, that 30 years, that is four doubles, right? Seven, 14, 21, 28. Now, the difference there, again, so that's not just four doubles, that's eight times. If you had 10 grand at, at 40, that's then 20, 40, 80, $160,000. You're getting 16 times your money if you let your money compound for another 28 years. Now, it's not always possible. And when I say everyone should do it or could do it or whatever, and again, our investing doesn't rely on that. As Doc says, my time frame is also five plus years for individual positions. I, our point is more just to encourage people to invest early, invest as much as you can afford to, and let time do its thing for as long as you can afford to. Because once you go from accumulation to drawdown, you simply don't have the same compounding potential because you're using some of the proceeds to fund your lifestyle. So look, Knock yourself out. If you retire at 40 or 50 and you've got enough cash in your portfolio, enough investments in your portfolio to generate enough retirement income, then wonderful. Um, I don't think it makes a, a difference at all. Um, most people, though, will struggle. Now, if you live a frugal life till 40 and then you want to live a frugal life after 40 and retire on tiny amounts of income, then great. Go, go and be self-sufficient on a farm somewhere in you know, country Victoria or, I don't know, outback Queensland. Cool. Really good. So whatever, whatever, whatever amount of money you need, the question is how long will it take you to do that? And that's a combination, as I said, of three things your contributions, your returns, and the amount of time you have to let your money compound. Any more on that before I ask you the big question, Doc? I uh, know. All right, here we go. This is the, we've had a long time for this question, but the biggest question, the most important question, and frankly for me, the uh, team planning question I need to ask you because mm. I, I need to replace you in a hurry. I'm, I need to know that. Mm. Will you go to Mars? I like Liam says when rather than if. Would you go to Mars when Elon succeeds? What's your answer? Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, actually, I'm pretty open to going to Mars. Uh, really? I, yeah, okay. absolutely. Because, uh, you know, uh, you know, Mark, Mars is going to be the new paradise, really, right? Because or it's going to be a red, dusty, hot planet with no well, atmosphere. But it could also be the, you know... it's <laughs> it's going It's going to be the place where everything is going to be right, right? There's going to be, you know, we're not going to create any pollution. There's all the pollution. True. that helps. Right? Yes. And, we're not, you know, we're going to be doing all the mining here yeah, or, you know, so things like that. So, so the pollution won't wreck the beaches and the streams and the oceans and the trees in Mars. Exactly. If, the, they, if they have them. If, right, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's the first problem. That's, that's for, first <laughs> problem. So, the, I, you know, if there is ever a, a civilization on Mars, I would not actually mind going there. Interesting. Um, it, would you go one way though? Would you want to make sure you come back? Oh, if I could go with my family, I'd probably go. There you go. Fascinating. If I can con convince, yeah. Absolutely. I have to work on our company notice periods to make sure you give me enough notice that I can replace you if you're going to plan to go to Mars. Because you, you, we can work remotely from Mars. <laughs> How long does it take for the signal to get seven minutes? Oh, I don't know, seven eight minutes. I mean, it's a long time for a podcast. We have to edit the podcast. 
maybe you can do, you know, you, maybe there'll be a technology that'll, that'll actually do it in, in nanoseconds from there. Interesting. Light speed. Can we, can we ever go faster than the speed of light, do you reckon? I don't know. That's that a big scientific be. question, isn't it, for that sort of stuff? That's, it's, yeah. It's leave that for another podcast? Yeah, the next podcast. <laughs> now, <laughs> if you haven't yet sent us a question or you want to send us another question or if you want to leave us a comment, make a suggestion or just get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. Had some suggestions, by the way, as some new guests, Doc. Someone wants us to have Paul Keating on the show. Uh, I got one for the Gardner Brothers, Tom and David, our co-founders, so maybe that might be an option too. If you have anything you want to share with us, please do. Use our socials. The one we're all on, the, the one that brings us all together is Twitter. At Aniaban Mahanti is Doc's Twitter handle. Mine is at TMF Scott P. And The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. Pretty straightforward. We're all on Twitter. Come and chat there. Tag us both so we can interact. It's always good fun. Uh, I think some, I haven't had a chance to ask. I've got a couple of questions or a couple of comments during the week. We'll hold those for next week's mailbag on Twitter. Uh, if you are on Insta, Doc isn't yet. Hashtag get Doc on Insta. Uh, but we'll be there one day, I hope. I'm at TMF Scott P. And The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. Uh, nicely, handily, the same as our Twitter handles. So at the Motley Fool AU, at TMF Scott P on Insta, or if you're on Facebook and who isn't other than Doc, you can jump onto the Fool's page at the Motley Fool Australia. Check out our new logo, our new brand if you like it. Uh, also, I'm at Scott Phillips Money on Facebook. So jump on there, send us a message again, leave us a comment, come and interact. It should be fun. Uh, we always like hearing from you. We love a chance to chat with our fellow listeners, our fellow investors. We're all on this together. We are investors writing and speaking for investors. Um, we're here because we love what we do and because we, frankly, were people who were members of our services before we joined. So there you go. We are literally like you, just uh, in different form. So do that. Jump on the socials. Come and say g'day. If you want a great deal to join one of our services, I mentioned Doc Service on Friday. My turn today because, you know, fair's fair. Join Share Advisor for still less than a cup of coffee a week. At Motley Fool, go to, sorry, go to fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. SA for Share Advisor, SA podcast. Come and find some of the businesses I've been recommending along with Andrew Leggett, our colleague, um, who is a wonderful bloke and with someone we like working with who gives a lot of value to our members. So I try and do the same as well. Fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. Our flagship service, we are still soundly beating the market some eight and a half years in. We're not far, far away from our ninth anniversary, Doc. Time flies when we're having fun. So join us. Come and find our next recommendations, fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. We're done, mate. That's it. Awesome. Time to go and enjoy the rest of our Sunday. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. Now, do subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. Or, of course, try the Podcast One app. We're now part of the Podcast One family, as I've said before. And if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review. Leave us some stars. Give us some feedback. Tell some people. Tell some friends. They could use foolishness in their lives too, I'm pretty sure. And, of course, if you want a bit of foolishness in your inbox and an offer to join Dividend Investor, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Monthly Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.